For some number of years now, we've been moving consecutively through the Psalms uh, during the summer months, and today our journey takes us to Psalm 66. Uh, The sermon text is printed for you on the back of your order of worship, um, if you'd like to read and follow along there. Beloved, this is God's holy and inerrant word. God's word is more precious than gold, more precious even than fine gold. It is sweeter, friend, than honey, sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen now. Psalm 66, to the choir master, a song, a psalm. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever. Whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out into a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God. And I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer, 
or removed his steadfast love from me. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Now, by the grace of your Holy Spirit, may you enable us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this portion of your word, that by it we might even more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Word of God, Hebrews 4 tells us, is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Anyone who has walked with Jesus for any length of time at all knows the truth of those words, that this is what the Scriptures do. We don't read them, they read us. God's Word does things to us. It confronts us. It encourages us. It puts us to death and then makes us live again. And the Scriptures do this in different ways. Sometimes the effect of God's Word is subtle and complex and grows slowly over time. It surprises us with its power when it's fully unleashed. But there are some portions of God's Word that are not particularly subtle at all. There are some portions that look us in the face and demand our attention. They speak to us directly right there on the surface. And they call us immediately to repentance and faith. Our psalm today is like that. Look how our psalm this morning begins. It breaks on the page like a thunderclap, right? Psalm 66 opens with a series of imperatives. Four quickly stated commands to the reader directed outward to the nations of the world, including us as well. The psalmist says, shout for joy to God, all the earth. Right, the very first word is a command. Shout for joy to God. All the earth. It's a universal command. It's a command to rejoice in the Lord. He continues with another. Sing, he says, the glory of his name. Then another. Give to him glorious praise. Notice these are all directives. Right, The psalmist is speaking unabashedly to the nations. He is calling them to the worship of the true God. He then goes on in verses 3 and 4 um, to, des- to describe exactly what that praise is to consist of, that he is calling them to. First, he says, shout for joy to God, give him praise, sing to his name. And then he tells them what to say. He says to the nations, say to God, say this, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises 
to your name. It's important, friends, for us to notice what is happening here right at the very beginning. This psalm is not just a prayer, or at least a prayer as we normally think about a prayer, as petition. It is also a kind of public sermon. It is a grand exhortation. And the psalmist is not just addressing the nations generally. He is speaking to you and to me as well. He's speaking to everyone with these words. He means all the earth. As the Apostle Paul would put it in Acts 17 in his sermon at the Areopagus in Athens, Paul said, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Right? That's a pretty inclusive statement, right? Everyone, all people everywhere to repent. That is the command of God. That is the command of this psalm that is directed to us today. We also, friends, are those who are commanded by this psalm to worship and to honor God and indeed to rejoice in God. Shout for joy, all the earth, to God, the psalmist says. The command is an invitation to joy. And it's worth remembering that this command to worship God, to rejoice in Him, to find our delight in Him, is fundamentally just that. It is a command. It's a command that's rooted in God's majesty, in God's person, and the awesomeness, as the psalmist says, of His deeds and the greatness of His power. Friends, God does not earn our praise. He does not entice us to worship Him. No, He commands it. And it is just and right for Him to do so. I think it's important for us to see this. Our modern sensibilities encourage us to make our subjective experience the locus of what we deem to be important or reasonable. But God's call for us to worship Him is rooted in His unchanging character, not in our variable sense of how things are going. And our response to this command to worship, to rejoice in God, to find our joy in Him, to honor Him, is first and foremost an act of obedience to that call. But having begun with this series of commands, the psalmist then shifts in verse 5 to an expansive invitation. I mean, look at this. In verse 5, he says, again, speaking publicly to the nations, to us, even here, you know, thousands and thousands of miles from where this psalm was written. He says, come and see what God has done. Come and witness. Come and, and observe what God has done. You see, the God in this psalm who commands our worship is not cold and distant. No, the God who speaks in this psalm is also the God who enters in to the messiness and earthiness of human history, who acts in time and space in such a way that men and women are compelled to say to one another, come and see, come and see what God has done. You see, that, that phrase, Come and see what God has done. It should bring to mind for us the songs of Zechariah and Mary as they respond to the angelic visions or visitations that they received. 
It should remind us of the announcement of the shepherds to all the countryside around after they worshipped the newborn incarnate Son of God. It should recall for us the women who on the first day of the week ran, ran from the empty tomb to tell the disciples that they had seen the Lord and that the tomb was empty. This phrase, come and see, come and see what God has done, it should remind us that the faith that we confess is not something that we ourselves fundamentally bear witness to. No, it is something that we are brought into. It doesn't begin or end with us. No, we are those who are part of a great story, a great number of witnesses who say together, come and see what God has done throughout the ages. For we are caught up in the great story of God's redemption, a story that stretches back for millennia, even to the beginning of time itself. The story that the psalmist wants to tell here, that he proclaims, come and see what God has done, it's the story clearly of the Exodus that he's talking about primarily. But according to the psalmist, that story is not only good news for Israel and for those people who escaped slavery that day. No, its meaning, he says, is for all people. Come and see what God has done, the psalmist says in verse 5 and continuing. He says, God is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him, the psalmist says. Again, that that invitation to joy, to shout for joy to God, all the earth. There did we rejoice in him, the psalmist says, who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. And then he says this, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. You see, the exodus, according to the psalmist, is the good news of God's deliverance, God's action in history, God's setting his people free that they might rejoice in his love. And as such, the exodus story is an invitation to all who hear to enter into the joyful celebration of God's triumph over evil and death. This, the psalmist is saying, is what God does. He sets people free from sin and death and evil. Come and see, he says, and what God does. But as verse 7 makes clear, the Exodus event is not only an invitation to the nations, it is also a warning. For in the Exodus, not only was Israel delivered, but Egypt's power was destroyed. Remember in Exodus 15, I will sing to the Lord sang the Israelites after they came through the Red Sea. I will sing to the Lord, they said. Why? For he has triumphed gloriously. How? The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You see, the exodus was not only the deliverance of Israel, it was also God's triumph over those forces that oppose him, particularly in this case, the rebellious nation of Egypt which had hardened itself against God's rule and received its just reward. 
as such, this declaration, come and see what God has done, is as much a warning as it is an invitation. And that's something we should notice and pay attention to as well. In verse 8, the psalmist gives another exhortation to the nations. Look again, he's speaking broadly here, universally. Bless our God, O peoples, he says. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. Notice those uh, pronouns there that the psalmist is, is speaking corporately. He's speaking to the nations and he's calling them into worship. But the tone that follows is different. This isn't the Exodus story anymore that he's telling. Now, this is a, a more difficult story, a, a darker and harder story. And now notice in verse 9, the psalmist begins to address God directly. He begins to say to God, you, O God. He's no longer uh, talking directly to the nations. He's speaking to God. These matters, it appears, in this portion of the psalm are so personal, so hard that he needs to talk directly to God about them. He says, for you, O God, have tested us. You, the repetition of that that, uh, address to God, you have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. Who brought them into the net? You did, O God, the psalmist says. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Friends, this, if you know the story of the Old Testament, is the story of the exile. This is the story of God's judgment on Judah after her centuries of unfaithfulness and disobedience. This is the story that the psalmist recounts here of how God refused to let Judah leave. He refused to leave Judah there in her weakness and her sin and her rebellion. But he drew near to her. But it was a painful drawing near because he had to cleanse her affections He had to purify her desires. He had to discipline his people in order to lead them into a new place of abundance. God is the one, the psalmist proclaims, who also does things like this. He not only delivers his people from evil and darkness, he also makes them grow in maturity and fruitfulness. All of these things um, did not take place to God's people because of fate or chance or arbitrary forces. You, O God, the psalmist says, tried us and tested us as silver is tried. You put a crushing burden on our backs. You brought us in to the net. Beloved, this too is part of what we are invited to witness by the psalmist. When we hear these words, come and see What God has done. For God does this kind of work in our lives as well. Does he not? He tests us. 
He tries us. He brings us into the net. He leads us through fire and through water. God does these things. They don't happen to us by accident or chance, but by the hand of our loving Father. And then when we are finally brought to the end of ourselves, He brings us into a new place of abundance. I mean, notice that, right? You have to go into the net. You have to go through the fire and through the water in order to stand in the place of abundance. Something interesting then happens in verse, excuse me, in verse 13 in terms of a, a formal grammatic way. The voice of the psalmist throughout the psalm thus far has been a a corporate voice. The psalmist has spoken of we and are. But now in verse 13, the voice shifts to the individual, to the singular. Right before the psalmist has said we and us or are, but now he says I. I, he says, speaking to God, will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble, I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Friends, it is here in this psalm that the living Christ, the psalmist par excellence, begins to speak most clearly. You see, Jesus is the ideal worshiper. He is the liturgical representative of the people of God. And here he enters into their story, the exodus, the exile, and he makes it his own. But the offering that our Lord Jesus brings to God, of course, is not the offering of bulls and goats. Rather, This psalm refers prophetically to what those offerings pointed forward to. The offering of Jesus' own body on the cross, which he presented to his Father as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Our Lord Jesus is, as Hebrews proclaims, not only the priest who offers the sacrifice, but also the sacrificial victim himself. And he's not offered again and again, but once for all, so that the story of God's redemption might be offered to all, that the nations might be brought in. This indeed is how the nations will receive the message of this psalm. Because our Lord became a servant to the circumcised, that the uncircumcised might hope and have joy, as Paul says that all the nations might now be brought into this history, the story and history of the exodus and the exile and the return to the place of abundance. And then in verse 16, the living Christ speaks to his church. Verses 13 to 15, our Lord Jesus is speaking to his Father. Verses 16 to 20, he speaks to his brothers and his sisters. Beloved, this is important to see the shift again in the psalm. 
The nations at large are no longer the audience for the psalmist's words here. No, in verse 16, Jesus begins to speak intimately to his brothers and sisters. He says to me and to you, he says, come and hear. Who? All you who fear God. And I will tell what he has done for my soul. Friends, this is an invitation of the deepest intimacy. This is our elder brother gathering us around him and giving us his own testimony about the faithfulness of his father. Come and hear all you who fear God, our Lord Christ says, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. Jesus, in the words that follow in the rest of this psalm, is inviting us to hear his own personal testimony, his own incarnate knowledge of his Father's goodness that he knows from his own experience, what he knows in his own body of his Father's faithfulness, of his Father's complete and utter trustworthiness. All of these things which he bears witness to in his own glorified and risen body. I cried to him with my mouth. Jesus says. He's saying those words to us so that we might hear them. He says, I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You see, this testimony right here of Jesus is born straight out of his experience on the cross. He knew that his father would not deliver him from death itself, but he trusted that his father would not leave him under the power of death. Indeed, as Jesus gave himself in death to God, he prayed the most vulnerable prayer that has ever been offered. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right? He relinquished his control and gave himself into his father's hands completely. And in verses 19 to 20, Jesus tells us about how his father responded to that prayer. He says, truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, says our Lord Jesus, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. It's fascinating to me that this psalm, which begins with such a broad lens, with such a universal call to the nations, which tells of the great corporate stories of Israel's exodus and exile, ends on such a personal and intimate note. It is the voice of the lone worshiper who speaks here at the end of this psalm. And that is because all of Israel's story. Indeed, all of God's plans for all the nations of the world hinge on this, on how he will respond to one man's prayer, to one man's desperate cry for help as he relinquishes himself into the hands of his Father. It all comes down to this. 
And what Jesus wants us to know, what he wants to tell us above all things about God, is that his Father is the one who hears prayer. Beloved, Jesus wants you to know, he bears witness to this himself, that God sees you. That he actually sees you in whatever place of need you are in. That your father actually listens to the cries of your heart. That your heavenly father is attuned to you in your sorrows and your trouble. How does he know this? Because he's experienced it himself. Truly, God has listened, Jesus says. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Beloved, you need to see this is the hope of the gospel. The goodness and faithfulness and nearness of God and trustworthiness of God is not something that you are somehow responsible to cling to for yourself on your own, to maintain your belief in those things. God's faithfulness, his his trustworthiness, his steadfastness, his love, that's not something you just grit your teeth and hold on to and, and believe. No, the only way that you can actually trust that those things are true, that God actually hears your prayers, that God actually listens to your cries, is if you are willing to trust someone else's testimony about it. And in particular, if you're willing to believe in and depend upon the personal testimony that Jesus Christ offers to those things. Beloved, your faith hinges not on the strength of your own will, but on the veracity of the word of the living Christ. Hear that, please. Your faith does not hinge on the strength of your own commitment, your own discipline, your own will, but on whether or not Jesus tells the truth. That's what matters. Your faith hinges on the veracity of the word of the living Christ. You see, the voice of faith is not some still, small voice in the inner chambers of your heart that you have to sort of keep that flame alive. No, the voice of faith is the voice that speaks to you from outside yourself. Right? The voice of faith is the strong voice of the risen Christ who comes to you in your place of weakness and doubt and says, Trust me, friend. Trust me in the midst of your trials and your darkness and your confusion. Trust me because I have been there in the darkness. Trust me because I know the Father. I know in that place what He is like. He listened to me. He heard me. He attuned to the voice of my prayer. It is because of the testimony of Jesus, beloved. It is because Jesus himself has unshakable, certain faith in his Father's love that we can join with Christ and say, not on our own strength, but fully dependent on his, 
we can say with him, Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Friends, this is the hope of the gospel. This is the voice of faith, because this, beloved, is the voice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who came into the world to reveal his Father to you. So listen to him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, indeed, we give you thanks for the work of your Son. For Father, how, without Jesus, would we have faith in you? Grant us this day, Father, the hope and joy of our salvation through the hope and joy of Jesus. May he share these gifts with us, even by his Holy Spirit this day, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.